Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, June 14th, 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday, and this Sunday is June 19th. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and over there in Central Time is our friend Charles Willard in Minnesota. Our little team is working to be faithful to Lectionary Year C, and that puts us in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday. We hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection, and here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently after the leadoff person shares some formative questions, and then in this virtual discussion, we share, encourage, and challenge each other. And our friend uh, Bill Hall will be on point for the discussion today. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. Charles Willard in Minnesota. Bill Hall in St. Petersburg, Florida. Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina. Like I said, Bill's going to be on point today. He's going to read the scripture and lay out some formative questions. Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, First of all, uh, great appreciation to Reverend Catherine Kerr, who sat in as a guest last week. Uh, Excellent uh, podcast. I got to experience the value of being able to see this later because I could not participate. Uh, My wife and I were away primarily to celebrate my wife's aunt's 100th birthday in Whiteville, North Carolina, in eastern North Carolina. But I did get to watch it later that day and a very engaging conversation led by Charles Willard. So thank you to my colleagues. It's a good message that uh, this isn't dependent on any one of us, that uh, we can continue even in the absence of one. Um, Our scripture for today is from Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. And I read from the new version that Charles mentioned last week, the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition. Uh, Charles, you can speak to this later if you want to. I could not find a difference between the regular New Revised Standard Version and this passage. Uh, I think that 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 is true. I'm still learning this new updated version and what all its focus is. So I read for us the word of the Lord from Luke 8, 26 to 39. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As Jesus stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you. Do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. 
Now, there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter there. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swine herds saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerizines asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Now, let's acknowledge at the front end that this is in many ways a strange narrative for us today. Um, But my three questions that I will offer are based on the belief that in the midst of this strangeness and some details we may be uncomfortable with or may even want to argue with, I think there is a narrative here that can inform our lives of faith today. So my first question coming to you, Sarah, in a moment, what points of contact do you see in this story between the culture then and now? Sarah? Well, first I want to ask, is mental illness the same thing as demon possession? And I don't anticipate an answer. I'm kind of just parking it as a rhetorical question for us to consider. In our modern sensibilities, we might have renamed this someone possessed or, or someone affected by schizophrenia. And I don't know that they are the same thing, but I don't know that they're not. So with that being said, we might look today for a, a physiological reason for um, the mental disorientation that we, we were presented with when we meet Legion. Might be drug interactions, might be a chemical imbalance, could be some physical head trauma of some kind. Um, or we just need to ponder what kind of life experiences might have led us, um, might have presented us with an unhinged mind that was unable to reconcile the, the, the experiences. Either way, as a culture then and a culture now, I think we have an irrational fear about this type of illness and, and whether or not it could fall on us. I think that it's perceived as uncontrollable. I think it's perceived as unexplainable. I think it invites us to consider something random, 
And and that, I think, for me, is terrifying because at any given moment, somebody could turn and look at me and go, I don't know that you're thinking things clearly. And I would go, maybe I'm not. And that would frighten me. So um, I wonder if it's because we know so very little about demon possession and only a tiny bit more about mental illness. Um, It seems that it's unexplainable, that anyone could become unhinged, and I think that puts us in a very difficult position of not imagining it happening to us. Um, That calamity could be set upon us um, and, and in a way that we aren't anticipating it, we can't explain it, and it sometimes is an irrational fear that we need to confront that maybe as a culture we've denied demon possession. Um, We maybe have renamed it mental illness. Um, That we don't know enough to come alongside somebody who has or or is experiencing this kind of crisis. Um, It requires some very strong Jesus-like patience. Um, You might need to have some previous life experience with this. to be committed to stand alongside someone who is walking through a diagnosis of anything like this. And I think it is often easier just to avoid the dialogue, the situation, and the person, which I think has prompted me to think about how we historically as a culture, as humans, have treated people who present themselves with these kinds of maladies. Um, We've disappeared them into asylums or sanatoriums, and uh, we might have done terrible things to them with uh, frontal lobotomies. We might have medicated them. We might have simply, you know, asked someone else to take them off our hands because they were threatening us. Um, I think these are all terrifying from the person who's experiencing the crisis to the person whose family is trying to stand with them. Um, I think it invites us to recognize our vulnerability. I think it invites us to recognize our abstract failure in some cases to cope. Um, So I think it it puts us in a place where we see our sin very clearly and that we're invited to um, recognize how very vulnerable we are as creatures. So I, I wonder about the ways that our culture and that culture responded to this particular person. Um, so, so far as chaining him to the gravestones or chaining him into a place far away from them because he was a danger to himself and to others. Um, yeah, I, I really, this, this kind of particular malady is very frightening to me because it's so undefined and so uncontrollable. Thank you, Sarah. Charles. I'm thinking that the neighbors have done what they perceive to be the the best option they had, which in a in a very limited set of what to do. I mean, they did not drive the man off the hill, just like the like the swine. Uh, they they did the best they could with the information they had and the capacities and skills that they had. 
and the options that were available to them at that time. They did not send him off like the pigs to run off the, off the top of the hill and, and kill themselves. Um, they cared for him as best they could. So the neighbors, if the neighbors are considered on the basis of reading this text um, to be bad neighbors, I don't, I, don't, I don't get it that way. I mean, we don't have the whole story in front of us, so that we don't know exactly how this happened, but it is clear that they recognized that he was a danger to himself as well as to others. Uh, but the option that I'm guessing would have been available to a, a group at that time, a family at that time, a community at that time, would have been to simply treat the, the, the demon-possessed man in the same way that uh, they treated uh, or that the, the pigs were treated. But that's not what happened. They acted like a family. And uh, the, the reaction and the concern at the end, I think, was simply because they, they now didn't know how to react. Uh, suddenly they find this person who, who had been so out of it that he had to be uh, restrained. Uh, and when he broke those restraints to, you know, further separated from the community, now he's like everybody else, or so it appears. And I, I, I suspect if I were at that time, which is hard to imagine, but I'll talk about it for a minute, I suspect if, if I were at that time, I would, I would be worried about when, when the demon that has been so prevalent in his life has disappeared that he is sitting and communicating um, dressed. Where did the clothes come from? Uh, like a normal person. And why that should disturb him, I guess, I guess if I'm thinking about it, we would, we would, see one thing and remember another thing and be worried, um, more worried uh, about seeing one thing that uh, had, we, we thought, you know, this, 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 this can't last. So it's, it's, uh, no wonder the other gospel writers had problems with it. Thank you, Charles. Don. Charles, I agree with you about best efforts of the community. I, I don't think the story holds up as well if it's about revealing, you know, that they've been engaged in bad behavior. I think they're they're doing the best they can, uh, and that he is alive and somehow being nourished in some way means they are valuing him in some ways. So I think I think I, I'm with you. I think that's an important start. Uh, I, I agree with you, Sarah, on your pieces too so I'm just going to uh, elaborate just a bit more about uh, Bill you're asking about connections between then and now and I was thinking about how an outsider enters a community Jesus being a real outsider in this one he, in other places he goes into communities I think he has advanced teams later in his ministry go out see how we're going to eat where we're going to where we're going to dine what where we're going to abide. This is different. He's a true outsider walking in. And I don't think there was a front door for him. There isn't for any outsider. You think of all of us who travel, you know, there are communities we can visit, we can walk right in the front door, and those we cannot. Uh, 
uh, and he has no front door. He cannot go and stay at the finest house. He's not. He doesn't know anybody there. There ain't no front door, uh, and uh, that will affect what pathways he uses to enter the town. Uh, for us, what streets you use to come in, uh, what lodging, what places to live, uh, what sources of income, if you're going to be there a while, are going to use. And by saying that, just imagine your town, your city, and the wide variety of places. Now, we outline by zip code or neighborhood. Why are they different? Why are the entry points really different? I don't think Jesus had any choice but to come in through the side door or the back door or whatever analogy you want to use. And when he does that, uh, that means he's coming in near the tombs anyway, or by where the garbage is, or where the itinerancy of the migrants are living. I, mean, I think that's what uh, is happening here. And so uh, Jesus is meeting people in the place that he has to access through. Uh, and so it's only natural this is the first person he meets. Uh, and uh, in this case, the culture, which is your question, Bill, puts Jesus right where he intends to be. I think that's interesting. He lands where he needs to be, and one of the first things he meets and faces he sees is this person. Only natural is where would this person be in this place? The outcast, even though still part of the family. And Charles, like going back to what you're saying, it's like it's still they're taking care of him. But what we call a family isn't unified at all. There are others in the family. So uh, I think that you see that every community and every family has many doors in it. And uh, that's all I have at this stage. Thank you, Don and colleagues. Um, I would echo what I think all have said so far. I would say that for myself this time in dealing with this passage, I felt more empathy for the townspeople than I felt before. Um, and uh, it occurs to me that this question number one and number two seem to follow in some ways sort of overlap, and I acknowledge that. Um, there is this issue of how does society protect itself? Um, I think any reasonable person would say that there need to be boundaries, and boundaries that are not maintained are not boundaries. So my question to myself is, since I've chosen not to be as judgmental of the townspeople as I've been prone to in the past. How do we figure out what reasonable boundaries are? Uh, I, I don't have an answer to that. Um, but there is a tension between the need to set boundaries and the legitimate question of what boundaries are appropriate. Uh, there are very real dangers. Um, and the other comment I would make based on my experience as a pastor over the years with people in recovery, recovery is very disruptive. 
there is a fairly high rate of divorce in couples where the one, for example, who is an alcoholic gains sobriety. Now, I'm not an expert on the so-called family systems theory and counseling. What I understand it to mean in the simplest term is that in any relationship, in this case a family, the change in one person impacts the whole family system. (laughs) And it was interesting and confounding at times to work with someone who finally gained sobriety or cleanness from drugs and to see how disruptive that can be in a family. We'd like to think, no. Uh, And that led me and others who work with people in recovery when they're working the steps of making restitution or uh, trying to heal relationships to counsel them to go slowly and to understand that however many years or decades of their addictive behavior, the, the family members and friends whom they have impacted are, are understandably going to be disrupted. And it also reminded me of what's called the Stockholm Syndrome, where there's the risk that someone can over-identify with the one that's holding them captive and be somehow drawn into uh, an over-identification, an over-empathy, and um, that could lead to their harm. So I'll just finish by saying this raises more questions than it offers answer, but at least I have some empathy for the response of the uh, community. Question number two. The accounts of this story, by the way, it's in all three synoptics. The only significant difference I have discerned is Matthew says there are two men, uh, Luke and Mark say one. I I think, uh, in essence, the three stories are congruent. The accounts of this story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke all indicate that the people of the city are upset with what Jesus did, with Luke and Mark specifically stating that the people were frightened. How do you identify with the neighbor's fears, and how does the gospel address these concerns? Don, let me begin with you. Well, in my opinion, the, the fear is uh, not about a single fear. I think there's this is a complex, a complex situation, many kinds of fears, and, and that might have made it even more difficult to deal with. Uh, so I'm just going to pick out one or two fears, and some of you may have others. We've already talked about some of those around the disruptions going on. Uh, so I, I, I want to start by saying uh, the Gospels have a lot of shut-ups and be quiet in them, all of them. And I think part of the fear here is related to shut-ups and be quiet. So ironically, we've got Jesus, in a sense, moving on the voices of others, other problems away, shutting it up so we can get on with life. At the same time, I'm, I'm choosing to believe this community and its fear is connected to shutting up as well. First, we've got an outsider who is not welcome, 
is not understood, came in through the back door, the first thing he does is start talking to people that they're having a problem with. So thanks a lot. Whether you're helping or not, please don't help. Uh, and now he's there and potentially even interpreting and, and inserting himself in the community. That's fearful. That's fearful. And then there's this change going on. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll just kind of bring in all the shut-ups and be quiets in the Gospels. Uh, I, I was thinking about one of the one of the fear problems could be of we you may have had in your life I know I have I'm sorry to admit it you think it could be at a table it could be at a meeting it could be with family it could be anywhere you travel you think you know that is the last person I want to be interpreting my community especially to a newcomer or an outsider that is the last person now I'm not saying this is the overarching fear but I think this could be a part of it. Uh, you know, Jesus has come in through the side door, the back door, in the eyes of the community, and who is he? Con- who is he connecting with? The last person I would want him. Even if I invited you, even if I wanted him, that is not the person I want him connecting. We thought we had this guy buried out there. He's alive, but he's you know he's away. And of all pe- of all people to talk about my family or to even be present in this group. To represent the city, come on! And I think I think a lot of people could remember the time where something like that happens, and they're talking. It could be about your home, your town, your school, uh, your family itself. It could be a relative. It's like, oh no, I'm not. You know, I'll tell you about my people. Oh no, not him, not him. Be quiet. And of course, we have something much bigger, which is illness. Uh, you know, something that's actually sucking the life out of families sometimes in terms of the care that's going to need to be provided to him. So the, the fact of him, I think, is a problem. And this goes back to the answer I had to the first question, which is gospel. Jesus is going right where he needs to be. He's starting there. Uh, and there was no advanced team. He didn't have his ticket punched, and he starts there. So I think also I... I think it's different. We deal with the other and who's your neighbor through the Gospels. Now we're dealing with the other actually being a part of the family. That he is claimed. You know, and that it's, and Jesus still is coming in through the back door. I think in any relationship, it could be a group of three or four people. Sometimes there's going to be the other and the exclusion. So I think this is a way to apply the gospel to the close, the closer knit family that we have as well. I'm choosing to treat him as family of the community, uh, and still Jesus's intervention is needed. Where to credit to the community, where their intervention will not help at all. And I'll, I'll follow up on the answering your your next question uh, in a minute, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Uh, Charles. I think I'm mystified like the like the people in the city, uh, and I think they they responded in a way that was not surprising. So I'm I, I'm still behind the people in the city. <laughs> okay, um, as I've noted, I found myself having empathy for the townspeople. Uh, but my question is sort of two-sided. One is, 
how can we identify with the fear? And then what does the gospel say to us? Um, I might note that according to my reading of Luke, and I may have missed something, I, I, I assume there were times in Luke's account where Jesus had already encountered Gentiles. This is the first reference I find to Jesus going outside uh, into uh, Gentile territory. So there's that additional layer that Jesus was a foreigner to these townspeople, that, that he was of a, a different race or culture. Um, and we noted that there was good reason for their fear. Yet Jesus often calls his followers not to afraid, not to be afraid. I think at times we can even hear Jesus chastising them for being afraid. And that is a tension I don't know how to resolve because fear can be a help to us. Um, In fact, I read a book decades ago, the title of which was The Gift of Fear. And it was written by a victim of a violent crime, acknowledging how she did not pay attention to clear signs of risk and allowed herself to be, she wasn't her fault, but allowed herself to be drawn into a situation that led to a harm. So fear in and of itself is not bad. It's, it's a genuine human experience and there's some value to it. So at least I can say there is tension between normal human fear. And of course, fear can be overdone, but, uh, that there is something uh, potentially in value of fear, and yet the call not to be afraid. But then I remember, at least my reading of Jesus in the garden, there was fear. If it be possible, let this cup pass away from me. Um, So um, I don't know how to resolve that. But, um, again, empathy for the people, and the desire to understand Jesus's frequent call not to be afraid. Sarah? I'm, I'm with you all the way. Um, with all the things that Don had offered as well as what you offered, Bill. Um, for me, the uh, I fall back into the... Uh, how do I reconcile myself to this really interesting example of human vulnerability? Um, the, the, the truthfulness of there but for the grace of God go I, that kind of, of thinking. And then I think about how equally random and unexplainable it would be to have a mystery person show up do a marvelous miracle and bring somebody back from the brink of madness and possession. And that would be equally frightening because it's equally unexplainable. Jesus sees the demoniac. He heals him and further confronts the community because they have chosen a commodity over the value of a human being. They're up that the pigs were that the pigs ran off the cliff into the water. 
And I think that's yet another challenge we have, is we tend to look at commodities as more valuable than humans. And what does that say about neighboring? And what does that say about family? When we would consider what it cost us to include that person again first. And and that goes back to that conversation about boundaries and being healthy. You know, I, I will say I think you're absolutely spot on. We do have to have an agreed-upon set of behaviors that say to keep our family safe, this is what we do. To keep our community safe, this is what we do. But I, 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 you know, I think we teeter or we walk a fine um, line between valuing stuff and valuing people, and and we are often, maybe it's just me, um, guilty of valuing my stuff more than the people. And I think that that is an invitation for me to to consider. Um, prioritization and and careful steps forward on all fronts. Good. Thank you, Sarah. Third question. The healing of the man in this story resulted in the drowning death of a herd of pigs, a significant economic loss. After the man was healed, Jesus instructed him to, quote, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you, end quote. Luke and Mark report that the man did so, with Mark's adding that the man witnessed to his healing not only in his hometown, but in the Decapolis, Decapolis literally means ten cities, the surrounding region. Um. Yet in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts, the people from that city asked Jesus to leave, which Jesus did. What do you make of Jesus' sending the man back into a hostile home environment to tell his story of healing? Um, It occurs to me that sometimes our most powerful witness occurs in the places and relationships where we least are welcome and where we least want to be. You you would imagine that um, this man being restored, my assumption is, had some sense of how the people would react in the the narrative tells us how they reacted. Maybe he heard that, the, the people saying, get away from us, Jesus. What have you done to us? I, I'm going to assume that he had some sense of how disruptive he had been and how his return to that community would be disrupted. Um, the other thing I notice here is Jesus's pattern is to minister and move on, heal and move on. But not just move on, to empower others to serve. In Luke's gospel, um, in chapter 9, 
Jesus sends the 12 out to teach and to heal. And in chapter 10, Jesus sends 70 others. So Jesus, a much of a important part of his ministry was what we would today call equipping people for ministry, sending them forth um, to um, to serve. And it's a reminder that there are costs associated with healing. You remember there were times Jesus said to somebody, do you want to be healed? <laughs> you sure you want to be healed? It's going to mean take up your bed and walk. Um, again, uh, quite a mixture of, of dynamics. I feel for this man. Uh, it must have been very difficult to go back and face those that he had been such a threat to. Uh, Sarah. Where would the witness of this man have more impact? I think he has to stay within his community because they're the only ones that ever experienced his demoniac behavior and can bear witness to his changed and healed behavior. Um, so I think that's where it has the most impact and and it has the most pro- opportunity to profoundly affect others. Um, his truth is bounded and amplified by what they experienced, which it, it, that means that his neighbors seeing him and hearing him as a healed person has more value than if he'd walked to a new community and said, look what this, this is great, this is what's happened to me. Um, I think because of the firsthand knowledge of both the experience before and after. So for me, it, it seems like this is the strongest witness opportunity for this healed person. Certainly um, the path of least resistance would be to go with Jesus um, and to feel included and I'll, I'll be allowed to, um, to, to kind of heal. And I think part of the healing that needs to take place are with the people that had boundaries that he crossed um, so that he can restore that trust into the relationship he had with them. So on one hand, it seems very logical to me that he would stay or be asked to stay in this community. It would seem loving to let him go with Jesus, um, but I think that he still would have to come back home. Thank you, Sarah. Charles? You're you're muted, Charles. There I am, I think. Uh, Thank you. It's, it's, it's... I guess one of my puzzles is what exactly was it that was bothering the people when he came back uh, and they experienced him in this new, new, new version of himself uh, without the demons that had possessed him? Um, and and we we're just we're, we're left with a puzzle. And I, I I think the people when they should have been rejoicing with him. 
they were they were afraid, uh, and or at least that's that's what it appears to be. And so for me, it's a it's a it's a loose end. Um, I don't. Oh, I'll leave it. I'll leave it there. It's a loose end. Okay, Don. Well, a lot of the passages of healing and restoration kind of stop, and we always wonder what happens. And there's a little more on this one. You know, uh, people reform. Jesus sends them back. They're healed. Go back and tell people nothing. We have a little more here that he was was active, and I'm grateful for that. But it doesn't say how that plays out in the timeline. So I'm going to take some liberties with this by reversing your question. I think the answer to your question is in reversing it, which is, what if he did follow Jesus? What if he disappeared? Write that story. I think he would have been disappeared in the a, a vague memory, a vague burden over the years in the past. Remember that guy? He's gone. He's gone. So I just, you know, it would invite if you're facilitating a class on this today, go tell the story about whether he's gone or not. Uh, so um, I think. Uh, that allows us to think about the themes of returning all through the gospel and the Bible. Uh, it's a reunion and returning. In a way, it's not a true return because he's, he's new in a lot of ways. They have to rethink what their relationships are in this reunion. But I wonder how long, Bill, the reunion had to take before he ventured out. A decade? Twenty. And then he goes out as a minister. After Jesus' death and crucifixion, resurrection, is that when he goes out? So I think the whole story points to him going back. And the focus is less on everything leads up to it than what goes back. And, and it doesn't disappear. Jesus sends him back uh, to do this work. And I, I want to recognize it probably isn't easy to greet a man, and I'm making up the fiction, to greet a man who uh, hit you in the face a week ago when you tracked him down and tied him up, or hit you in the face three times, or you had to tell your family over dinner, he's out. This, this was, you know, this is part of life. It is not easy to greet somebody who broke your nose. And that may have been the case with this person, or terrorized your family. He's been a problem, or took a whole afternoon of your time uh, to go find him over and over and over again. How long will that take? A year? Five years? And I think that's what Jesus meant to put in place, that the, the messages that we're giving a hint about, that he goes out, he talks about what happens, requires what's about to happen when he's returned to his community. And I, I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm sure it was a long, difficult, wonderful period of discovery and renewal for everybody that was involved. So it's an, also, of course, they're angry. The prodigal son's brother is furious. Of course people are angry. You know, there's no, re there's no reason to apologize for any of that. Jesus used the prodigal, and the brother was furious. Of course he was. He took all the money. He inconvenienced me. What are you doing? 
So I think there's always been this a temptation to go, oh, happy, and they come in, and yes, they're fearful, but you know they learned after a few weeks everything's okay. No, I don't think that's the case at all. I think the gospel played out in a generation of getting to know each other, and in this case, I think the one difference from some of the uh, returns on healing, or uh, let's say a uh, uh, tax collector climbing a tree and then changing his life, is they know who they are and they build on that. I don't know that this person's, he needs time to recover who he is. We only have his name. That should be a symbol. You've got to figure out what his name is. You know, does he even have a family out there? Who am I? And I think the community is equally responsible in the who am I. You know, it's not just that at first they may be like, well, I don't have to chase him down on Saturday afternoon. Good. He's never going to hit me in the face again, I hope. But there's also, I think, a bigger obligation is to help him know who he is and help him know who the community is. I think that's probably harder, harder work. And that's where the gospel is. I think everything's pointing to what happens after, after, after. And each community member is going to come at a different pace, in a different way, in a different tone. But at least they'll see each other and they can get there. And I think the promise of this is that they're going to get there. Uh, that they're, they're going to get there. And you know, to, to to wrap up and build on what I think each of you said, especially you, Charles, is we're with this community. You know, they they did they did what they could, and now, and they and they they are they felt a responsibility. They're going to have to build on that now. They can do it hard, but they're going to be able to do all that complex. It's not just healing, but helping everybody knows who they are. It's kind of like a child. He's a child of that community. Who are you? What are our responsibilities to you? So they're going to have another harder. They think he was present in their lives before. Oh, boy, you haven't seen anything yet. Those are my thoughts, Bill. Thank you. And I will add briefly one quick comment. Thank you to my two members. Listening to you, Don, I thought of Saul, who became Paul. Uh, I believe... Scholars think there was at least a three-year gap between his conversion and his re-entry into the, the his entry into the Christian community. He went away for a season. Um, it is not easy. First of all, it's not easy to repent of the kind of things Saul was doing, sanctioning the murder of Christians. Uh, it was surely not easy for this man to be, as we might say, in his right mind and rediscovering or maybe discovering for the first time how to live in the community. Um, So again, empathy for the time it takes and uh, yet real change is possible. Thank you, team. And Don, I'll hand it back to you. Thanks, folks. Uh, for those listening in, Palmasia Presbyterian Church is at 3501 West San Jose Street. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We commend that site to you every week for great sermons, prayers, reflections, discussions, and disagreements over Scripture, uh, outstanding music, chances to take communion. Uh, so, so check it out. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you next time because you're always welcome. We'll see you next time.